Good morning. Y'all ready to mark up the book of Micah with me? Sure, I heard one, one gentleman say to humor me. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, we can mark it up together in here. You can go back home and you can reflect upon notes and mark it up there. That's just fine as well. Maybe you turn there in your Bible with me to the book of Micah. If you don't have a Bible, you can pick one up at the exits, and that would be our gift to you. If you're following along in your phone, using a Bible app, that's fine, or our church app, that's fine as well. Um, we'll also have the verses up on the screen, but do encourage you to bring your Bible as we seek to uh, mark up these kind of unmarked pages of our Bible in uh, the Minor Prophets. My name is Adrian. Great to be with you today. Welcome to everyone who's watching in the venue and to those watching online at carneyefree.com. I'd like to pray here as well we begin this morning because uh, our, our youth, Matt uh, just talked here in the auditorium, Jordan just spoke in the venue about your giving, you know, your generosity. Thank you for your generosity. I want to echo that. And particularly this week, well, we have VBS here at the church. And then uh, last week, our high schoolers went to Challenge, which is our EFCA-wide, denomination-wide youth retreat that takes place every couple years, though this time in Kansas City. And Challenge is a tremendous, tremendous opportunity for growth for our high schoolers. And then simultaneously, a number of our college students, though, this week are in Chicago for Pastor Rob Stevenson's 10-year anniversary as lead pastor up there at Circle Urban Ministries and Rock Church, and they're serving that church for a week. So this is like kind of a big couple weeks where our high schoolers, our college students, our uh, elementary school uh, kids are really learning and growing with God, at least in many, many cases. So I want to pray for our students, for our kids, and probably you join me in praying for all those volunteers for VBS this week, right? Okay, there'll be a lot of volunteers in this building as we'll accept, welcome about 300 kids here over the course of this next week. Pray for the volunteers, amen? All right, join me. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the really good things that are happening in this church, for all the learning and enrichment and discipleship opportunities for each of our kids and also for us as adults when we serve in these areas, when we join the mission in these areas, we also grow in Christ. We begin to connect the dots but between the things that we read and study and pray about and the reality of our lives in Christ as we join the mission. And so we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to do just that this week. We praise you, God, for our C20 college students and young adults who are serving in Chicago. We pray for a blessing on Pastor Rob and Rock Church. And uh, thank you, Lord, for the 38-year partnership that we have with that church and that ministry. And we ask for our college students that they would grow greatly as they learn together in a very different environment than our own. Please stimulate their faith in powerful ways over the course of this coming week. We thank you, Lord, for our high school students and for Jordan and Hushai, who took our high school students to... Um, to Kansas City though this past week fought for challenge and all that they grew in together with 5,000 other high school students across the nation. As they learn more about their faith and what it means to stand for Christ in a culture that does not. And what it means to follow Christ and to love fellow classmates even when you don't receive that back from them. I pray Lord that those would be uh, shaping talks and a momentous week for, for our high school students. And Father, we thank you for all the kids that will be in this place, all across this building over this next week. Probably over 300 children will, will be here, many of whom come from church backgrounds, but many who do not.
And we ask, Lord, your great blessing on each of those children and on each of those families. For those families that do not have a church home as they come in here, may they be roundly welcomed and blessed as they enter into this place. We pray that those kids would grow in Christ this coming week. And we ask for parents, for teachers, for helpers, for students who are assisting, who are joining the mission, Lord, that you would give them energy throughout this week to be present and loving to each and every child that they serve. We ask God that our volunteers, those on mission though this week, uh, would not just look forward to Friday afternoon. <laughs> but Lord, you would give them the joy to be present with each and every one of those kids. And they would leave Carnegie free on Friday afternoon saying, my teacher, my helper, they cared about me. They loved me. And they taught me something more about Christ. So, Father, we invite you to do great work in all of these ministries this week. And now, Lord, as we turn to your word, would you please open our hearts? We avail ourselves to you. We trust ourselves, all that we are, to you. Please teach us from your word this morning. We ask by faith in Jesus' mighty name. God's people say, amen, amen. What does the Lord require of us? What pleases our God? Those would be pretty important questions, wouldn't they? Those would be pretty important questions. What pleases our God? What does he require of us? This morning as well, we turn to the minor prophet Micah. We're going to see a man who gives us a direct answer to those very questions. I want you to know, though, that Micah, like most of the other prophets, he has a way of comforting the afflicted. So if you're afflicted today, you're struggling today, I pray that you find some comfort from Micah. But he also has a way, like the other prophets, of afflicting the comfortable. So if you're really comfortable today, buckle up. You might get afflicted by the words of Micah today. Micah was a very good prophet in that he did both of those things. Friends, if you want to just be comforted, if you want to only hear what you already believe, I'm telling you, do not read the prophets. Or Paul. Or Peter. Or Jesus, for that matter. Don't read any of them if you only want to be comforted. Because the Bible has a way of just kind of hitting us between our eyes, does it not? The Bible has a way of hitting us between our eyes and afflicting us when we are overly comfortable in our way of life, well, whatever that may be, which, frankly, I think we should expect when we mere mortals come into the presence of one who is pure gold. Like, God is pure gold. He is righteousness and holiness, and to be in fellowship with one who is pure gold, I should be able to recognize in response to his word, where there is some dross in my life that needs to be purified. We should expect to be hit between the eyes from time to time as we study God's word. 
So in the Minor Prophets, that's what each of the prophets do in different ways. Hosea called out Israel for her idolatry. You'll remember from week one of the series. Amos came in and called out Israel for her injustice. Obadiah came in and called out Edom, another nation called Edom, for her injustice. Jonah, who we talked about last week, called out Israel, and specifically one man, for his indifference. But in essence, what you have across the prophets is these two themes that you can look for in both the major prophets and the minor prophets, again and again and again and again. Idolatry and injustice. Idolatry and injustice. Again and again, throughout all the prophets, these are the things that the prophets railed against Israel about and frequently comforted Israel when they were engaging in true and right worship. Blessed Israel for engaging in true and right worship or practicing mercy, practicing justice. And all of this really comes together today with the prophet Micah. I wonder if you've noticed while well, when reading the prophets that most of God's judgments are directed toward his own people. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that, please? Okay, most of God's judgments are directed toward his people. There are some judgments like Obadiah's against Edom that is directed to another nation and there's others that we'll get into. But by and large, probably 80% of God's judgments throughout the prophets are directed to his own people. The reason for this is simple. Israel entered a covenant with God in which God promised to build a great nation out of one couple named Abraham and Sarah and to make this nation a great beacon of light for all other nations. That it would be a holy and distinct and unique and beautiful people that would have a gravitational pull that was so unique in their practice of the Ten Commandments that other people would be drawn into fellowship with the people of Israel. They would want what the people of Israel got. That's what he intended. Okay, so two sides of the covenant. God's promise, I will never leave you or forsake you. I am with you. That promise still stands. Israel's side was to obey the Ten Commandments. How did they do with that? Generally, not too well. It didn't happen much. And so the majority of the pronouncements and the prophets are against God's people, Israel. This is informative for us because God would likewise focus our attention on the man in the mirror. Okay, it's, it's, like, it's really, really easy to look out the window at the world and all the things that's going wrong there and Lord knows there's a lot. But where God would focus our attention is the man in front of us, the woman in front of us in the mirror. Because like Israel, we who follow Christ, we believe that we are blessed to be a blessing, and we believe this, to whom much is given, much is, that's right. To whom much is given, much is required. So it was for Israel, and so it is for we. And, and we've been given a fair bit, have we not? My friends, we've been given a lot. And to whom much is given, much is expected. This is going to be Micah's point, really throughout his prophecy. I hope you had an opportunity to read this ahead of time this week, 
or at the very least watch the Bible Project video that we've been noting that you can find on Right Now Media each week prior to the prophet that we look at. It'll really help your reading and your understanding of these less known pages of our Bible. But here's the context, Micah chapter 1, starting at verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morasheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. So three different kings of Judah. Micah is prophesying during their reign, and Micah is prophesying based on a vision that he saw concerning Samaria, which is to the north, and Jerusalem, which is to the south. So he gets this vision. This word of God comes to him, and then it goes on to say this in chapter 3, verse 8, as Micah is inspired. <clears throat> oh, I love that sound. I love that sound so much. Let's be people of the word. Chapter 3, verse 8, but as for me, I am filled with power, Micah says, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. Let me just pause here and note from these two verses that what makes a prophet a prophet is not that they had a little nudge. It's not that they had a nice subjective impression that they believe is the word of God and so they're gonna speak it. It's not that they had bad pizza last night and now they feel some indigestion and they're gonna speak that out. No, it's none of those things. It's, I am filled with the Spirit of God, with a word from the Lord. I've received a vision from the Lord, and then the Old Testament prophets, they prophesied, they foretold, or they foretold a word from God on the basis of that, and then it was codified in the Scriptures. Now, Micah's message is a declaration of how God's people had missed God's standard and then a simple invitation to God's people to return back to his standard. Micah is a contemporary, if you're thinking about your Bible history, he's a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. Okay, so he's speaking in both the northern kingdom and to the southern kingdom, whereas Isaiah is more to the southern kingdom and he's a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. He's writing about 725 BC as the northern kingdom of Israel is about to be destroyed by the great Assyrian empire who is coming in from the east. These are the same people over in Assyria that you might remember Jonah preached to last week, okay, as Charles preached last week, uh, Charles talked about this, and Jonah preached to these people in Nineveh 30 years before. Okay, many of them repented. Many of them turned to God, even though they were outsiders, they became insiders. And here's the deal. Many of them are living much more faithfully toward God than the people of God themselves. Ooh, get you on that for a while, but we'll save it for another day. Now, many of them repented. They became followers of God. Israel is now falling to Assyria because of these two issues, idolatry and injustice. What is idolatry and what is injustice? Idolatry is this. Idolatry is attachment or allegiance 
to any person or place or thing over God. Okay, we, uh, we don't like the word idolatry, uh, but other synonyms to idolatry would be these, like attachment, allegiance, heart-level entanglement to something else. Even if I wouldn't say that I am worshiping that, my heart would tell you, if you could see my heart, that I'm attached to something else, even over my attachment to God. We see this in Micah chapter 1. You look at verses 3 to 7. Again, look at Micah 1, 3 to 7. Here's what it looked like in both the north and the south. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him. The valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? You might circle the word high place in your Bible. High place is a false place for false worship. What is Judah's high place? Is it not right in Jerusalem? Oof. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her, underline this, all her images. Her idols, circle that, we broke into pieces. I will destroy all of her images. So here's what's going on in these two nations now at this time. Yeah, you see a map up on the screen of the two nations that once were the nation of Israel. You have in the north the kingdom of Israel, in the south the kingdom of Judah. If you remember your Bible history, there was a civil war. And after civil war, they divided into, into these two. And the capital of the kingdom of Judah, what was Jerusalem, and the capital of the kingdom of Israel became Samaria. And the first king over the northern kingdom of Israel, he said, we're going to set up some idols in Samaria so you don't have to go all the way down to Jerusalem for your worship and worship at the temple there where they also set up idols there. We will set up our own idols in Samaria and you can just worship there as opposed to going all the way down to Jerusalem. And those idols that we set up sometimes would be representations of Yahweh, and other times those idols would just be a golden bull like that. And so what's happening there in the northern kingdom is, Yahweh, we come to you until you're not giving us what we want, and then we give our allegiance to this golden bull. And we'll go back and forth between the two. And they fall into the same polytheistic worship that so many of their neighbors fell into. Now again, idolatry is this big word, and none of us would say, if I was to ask, do you practice idolatry? I'm sure no one would raise their hand. Okay, none of us would say, yeah, I practice idolatry. Let me tell you about my little worship center at home. You wouldn't do that, of course not. But like, think of these attachment words, these synonyms. Heart-level allegiance. Emotional entanglements. At a heart level, I have an attachment to some other person, place, or thing that is less than God. 
Let me give a few examples. I have a friend from another season of life who is constantly anxious and depressed because he's constantly comparing his sizable income and home and cars to other people's more sizable income, home, and cars. And he's constantly depressed. What does that reveal to you about his attachments? There's people I know who so much need to be right that they ruin relationships left and right. What does that reveal about their idols? You look at Jonah last week. Charles preached a brilliant message on Jonah last week. If you didn't get a chance to hear it, go back and listen. Jonah's idol was this. He loved his nation so much that he looked with disregard on other nations and could not see God's redemptive work in other nations. As opposed to what we pledge allegiance to, what do we say? One nation under God. What's, what's top? God, nation, right? Somebody, come on. God, the nation. For Jonah, it was my God under my nation. Okay, that can become a heart-level attachment. That was his idol. Uh, other people regularly fall into presenting a self-image or a brand management of sorts where they really need other people to see them as powerful or intelligent or sexy. And so they're constantly massaging their reputation in front of other people. What does that reveal about their attachments? Here's one of mine. I care too much about my own achievement of my plans. I really like my plans. Yes, I do pray through my plans. I ask God for wisdom, but once I feel like I've got God's wisdom on them, I set my course, and it's hard for me to be flexible. Therefore, a few weeks ago, Susie bought me a puppy. That's not a joke. She did. She's working with the Lord to attack my attachments. <laughs> I love the way the reformer John Calvin put it many years ago. He said, 500 years ago, the human heart is an idol-making factory. The human heart's an idol-making factory. We will find something that we attach ourselves to at a heart level if we are not careful. And please hear me, my friends. No matter what it is, no matter how good it may be, even the greatest thing, the second greatest thing, which is family, can become an idol. Anything that is a great thing that becomes the most important thing ceases to be a great thing anymore. Any good thing that becomes the greatest thing in your heart, it ceases to become a great thing anymore. This is the nature of idolatry. It's why Jesus said you cannot attach yourself to God and money. Because money will grab your heart. So it's a good thing. Money's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. I'm not saying that. It's, a, it's not even a good thing. It's a neutral thing. It's a neutral thing. That's all it is. It's neutral. But it, it can grab our heart and it can take our worship, can it not? 
Okay, any good thing that becomes the great thing in our hearts ceases to become good anymore. So Micah has to call out Israel's idolatry. And then second, he's calling out Israel's injustice. Now justice is this. Justice is taking action to make wrongs right. It's seeing that there's something wrong. And I notice there's something wrong and I have some influence. I could do something about this. There's someone being picked on in my realm of influence. There's something I could do about this to help create justice, to make wrongs right. Injustice was everywhere in Israel at this time. You look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Micah says this, Listen, listen please, he's begging. Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers over Israel. Should you not embrace justice? You who... Tell me if this doesn't sound like today. You who hate good and love evil. Man. I mean, it, people just turn over today what is good and what is evil. You who hate good and you who love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones. How are they doing that? Look at verse 9. Chapter 3, verse 9. Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, who despise justice, <laughs> you despise justice, you distort all that is right. You might circle that word distort. Frequently, injustice is just a small distortion of what is right. Who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bride. I'm sorry, not for a bride, for a bribe. Her leaders judge for a bribe. Her priests teach only for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. So get this, in Israel this time, the priests and the prophets, the spiritual leaders of the people, are offering their services on behalf of God, but they're only doing so for a price. So you come up to your pastor, you come up to your spiritual leader, whoever it might be, and you ask them for prayer, and they say, if you give me a 20. Like it was that kind of thing. It's crazy making. Okay, they're only doing it for a price, which left the poor in Israel without spiritual shepherds. That was happening. On top of that, legal leaders, legal authorities amongst the people of Israel, they're doling out their decisions to the highest bidder. So whoever pays the highest bribe, whoever's the highest bidder, they give their decision. The legal leaders, the governing authorities in Israel are doing that. Israel is being ruled at this time by bribes. And if that wasn't enough, you turn back to chapter 2, and in my opinion, it gets perhaps even worse than that. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says, Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. Okay, there's, like a, there's, a vetal, there's a very subtle plotting that can happen in the human heart. Who subtly plot evil on their beds. How can I manipulate the situation to get what I want? At morning's light, they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. Here's what they do. They covet fields and seize them. They covet houses and take them. They defraud the people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. 
Now, in the ancient Middle East, much like in our culture today, to inherit a parcel of land is a big deal, is it not? Like, it would be almost a sacred thing to have a parcel of land that you pass down from one generation to another generation. I've heard it said this way here in Nebraska. We don't inherit the land from our fathers. We are borrowing the land from our children. Hmm. We don't merely inherit the land from our forefathers. We're borrowing it from our children. That's why it's so very important to us. Imagine, if you will, that land being seized because you happen to be a small family farmer with very little wealth or power. That is exactly what these wealthy and powerful farmers, wealthy and powerful Israelites were doing to their working class countrymen here in about 700 B.C., and Micah's saying, you plan iniquity in your hearts. You devise these plans ahead of time. You covet a piece of land, and then you find a way to manipulate the system to seize what you want. How can you even claim to, to love God, he's saying. You do that kind of thing to your neighbor whom you see? Remember what John says, how can you say you love God when you do not love your neighbor whom you see? If you hate, if you devise evil against someone whom you do see, then you probably can't love God whom you do not see. And so Micah goes on throughout the rest of this chapter and he whispers to Israel's leaders, you'll reap what you sow. You're gonna reap what you sow. And so as you've taken the land of these small family farmers, God's going to use mighty Assyria and he's going to come in and take your land from you. And that's exactly what God did through the Assyrian Empire. And Israel to the north was expelled from their land for 200 years. God don't play. God does not play. So what would you call Israel's unjust or Israel's actions here as we look at all these different passages? I would call them this unmerciful and unjust and arrogant. Those three words. Unmerciful, unjust, and arrogant. Idolatry is arrogance. It's putting myself on the throne that God alone deserves and determining what I will place first as opposed to placing God first. Unmerc unmerciful, unjust, and arrogant. And to all of that, Micah responds in, most of the, in one of the most well-known verses in the entire Bible. Turn over to Micah chapter 6, verses uh, 6 and 7, well, we'll start with. Here's his response to everything, though, that I've just said, though, that's been going on in the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah as well. He says, rhetorically, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? As I come to church, as I come to temple, as I go to Samaria, what should I bring? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves only a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams? of offering that I would bring with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I even offer my firstborn for my transgression, which the other nations around Israel were doing? They bring their firstborn sometimes and offer it as a sacrifice of worship to their false gods? Shall I offer the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Are these the things that God requires? 
You know, Micah could have answered in this moment with the 613 commandments in the Old Testament. He could have listed out those 613 commandments as given to Moses. He could have said, you just need to take communion every week. He could have said, you just need to pray your rosary every day. He could have said, you need to dress the part at all times so that you look a certain way before other people. He could have said, you need to give a million dollars to the church. He didn't say any of those things. In response to what does the Lord require, what pleases the Lord, what does the Lord want, what kind of offering shall I bring to the Lord? Micah responds in one of the most well-known verses in all the Old Testament. He says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. These three, to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. I mean, he could have listed anything, but he boils it down to these three simple and pure virtues, humility, justice, and mercy. You see, my friends, the problem of the human heart is this. We tend to fabricate these false gods, and then we also tend to fabricate our own false standards. And this is Micah's big issue well, with Israel this time. They've fabricated false gods. They've fabricated and they've rationalized their own false standards, and therefore they're missing the mark on God's standards. If you read chapter 1 of Micah carefully, you see how upset he is about this. It says literally, he weeps and wails over the sin of his people. It says he walks around barefoot and naked. And he wails like a jackal. He moans like an owl. I'm not making this up, people. This is actually in the Bible, okay? The prophets were really weird at times. But, but, but the reason that he does all these things, walking around barefoot and naked, this is not a prescription for you. Okay, this is a description of what he did. Good Bible readers distinguish between description and prescription. Okay, he's describing, this is what I did to get your attention. Say, look at me, please do justice, love mercy, walk in humility with your God. Here are a few more examples from the scriptures. Isaiah 1.14 puts it this way, learn to do right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Jesus says in Matthew 25, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, the most vulnerable around us, whatever you did for them, you did it also for me. Or how about Isaiah 66 too? This is the one I esteem. You wanna know what God esteems? You don't wanna know what, what pleases God. This is the one I esteem, the one who is humble and contrite who gets right with God regularly, who repents, 
who is humble about their mistakes and failures. The one who I esteem is, is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. So again, as I've been saying here, humility is so powerful because it puts to death our fabricated gods. And the human heart is an idol-making factory. We all can do it. Humility before the sovereign one puts to death our fabricated gods. And mercy and justice before the sovereign one puts to death our fabricated and rationalized standards, whatever they might be. And we all have them. Like God's standards of mercy and justice are just very, very different than human standards of mercy and justice. Let me give you some examples of what this might look like, okay? Just in a, a fellowship, a beautiful fellowship like ours. And these kinds of things that I'm about to say to you, these things sometimes happen in this fellowship. It, it might be that you have a second or third car and you know someone else in our church family who has one car, and that one car breaks down, and it just appears to you as no big deal at all to offer them your second or third car. You're welcome to take mine as long as you need it, as yours gets repaired. Okay, that, that's, that's mercy. That's saying, I look out for my brother or my sister. I am my brother's keeper. Or we might learn from our brothers and sisters down at Crossroads Rescue Mission that they need coats this winter. Who knows what we'll learn from them. We have a great partnership well with them. They need coats. And you say, well, Jesus said something about coats once. He said, if someone has two coats and someone else has zero coats, give to the one who has no coats. And then you don't need to go replace yours either. You can just give to them. Okay, that's, that's mercy. That's, that's sometimes even justice when a person cannot have what they need to stay alive. It could be that you have a brother in Christ who has been saving and saving for a house, and I'm telling you, these things happen in our church family. And this brother has the income, for example, to pay the mortgage, but because he's not wealthy, he cannot get the money for a down payment. And as much as he saves... Month after month after month, he cannot get that 20% down that is needed for a down payment right now. And you happen to know that he can't get a loan from the bank, but you happen to have the money that you could give him a no-interest loan yourself. That would be justice. And do you know that the Old Testament actually commands the people of God to do just that? To lend to each other without charging interest? Not just to give gifts, but to empower people up to say, if you're not able to rise to this, I will give you a loan, not a gift. I'll give you a loan, and you can repay that to me without interest. Like, what if the church was doing those kinds of things? I want to tell you that this church sometimes does those kinds of things. There's people in this fellowship that do those kinds of things. And we do those, that is fighting for mercy and justice and empowering others. I remember years ago, I was talking to, to one of our deacons, a gentleman named Bill Luke, and he put it this way. He said, our God is a justice warrior. I love that. I've never forgotten that line. Our God is a justice warrior. Like, it's just, it's who he is. It's his character. 
His character is justice. His character is mercy. We can count on that all the time. That's why there's some 2,000 verses in the Bible about God's concern for the poor and the fatherless, the disabled, immigrants, the unborn, widows, for the vulnerable. Whoever are the vulnerable, God has a special care for them. He's a justice and mercy-seeking God. I'm so grateful in our church for ministries like Men in Action, and divorce care and recovery ministry for those who have had addictions or hang-ups, for our deacon and deaconess ministry and our storehouse ministry, which give people a hand up, not just a hand out, but empower them. Meet them where they are because we are our brother's keeper. I'll, I'll illustrate with this the difference between mercy and justice though, this way. Several weeks ago, I sat down with a woman in our church as she was preparing uh, her uh, testimony for her baptism story. She had a beautiful, beautiful baptism story. Her name was Christina Beck, and she, of course, gave me permission to share her baptism story. Otherwise, we wouldn't share it. But she's grown tremendously in her faith over uh, these past number of years. And Christina has a disability. And again, she's fine with me sharing this. She has a disability. And uh, as I sat down with her to listen to her baptism story a few weeks ago, she said this, Adrian, I wanted to sit down with you to share my baptism story because I know that you know how to be with people with disabilities. And I think what she was saying to me in that moment is, I know that I'm with you, I'm not judged by you. You're merciful to me. You don't try to fix me. I'm safe with you. And if that's true, it's because I've worked a lot with people with disabilities over my life, and I've learned far more from them than they've learned from me. It's not even close. But I, I tell you, as, as Christina said that, I almost couldn't cue up my questions for her baptism story. I was touched so deeply by that statement. It was one of the nicest compliments I've ever received because she experienced mercy. But, but what, what if Christina had said this instead? Just imagine with me. What if she had said, Adrian, I wanted to sit down with you because I know you know how to be with people with disabilities, but I didn't want to sit down with Pastor so-and-so because he makes fun of me for my disabilities. What if she had said that? Christina wanted me to be sure to say there's no pastor that makes fun of her. <laughs> okay. okay, so that does, this is all imagination. But had she said that, if I would have just felt good about myself for the nice compliment she gave, that would be a failure of justice. You hear? So if there's an opportunity to stand up on behalf of someone who's vulnerable, and I have influence to do it, and I sit back in silence, indifferent, I'm engaging in the sin of Adam at that moment. The sin of passivity in that moment. When God would invite me to stand up against what is wrong, if I curl back in fear and just wallow in the compliment that I've been given, that is called a sin of omission. And we love to talk about sins of commission, but the Bible also talks about sins of omission when we have an opportunity to do what is right and we fail to seize that opportunity. And my friends, what Micah is inviting us to 
is to seize the opportunity. He says, this is what is good. This is what is right. This is what pleases the Lord. This is what God requires of you, oh man, oh woman. That we together as a church family, we would be this kind of people. That we would act justly. That we would love mercy. That we would walk humbly with our God. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, how we thank you for your great standards. We thank you, Lord, that you call us to something that is far greater than what we see throughout this world on a day in and day out basis. We praise you, God, that you do not leave us right where we are, but you afflict us when we are comfortable. Even as Micah gives this very challenging message throughout this book, he closes it out at the end of his prophecy with this word of hope for the remnant of Israel, which is us. And he says that he will not harbor his anger forever, but he forgives and he even forgets. And he's faithful to his covenant promises. And his covenant promise to us, my friends, is this, I will not leave you or forsake you. I am for you and not against you. And I will forgive you from first to last. And so perhaps today as I wrap up this message, you're feeling a level of conviction about an opportunity to show mercy to someone that you missed. Or an opportunity to act justly that you missed. Or about a reality that you have a false attachment that is grabbing at your heart. Well, now would be the time just to process that with God. Lord, is there any time that you've invited us to do what is right and we have failed to do it? Is there anything that you're calling us to do even now? That we would stand up with the justice warrior God for the cause of justice. Is there anyone hurting around us right now, maybe in our neighborhood, maybe in our family, someone vulnerable that we know that needs a word, a touch, that expresses the mercy of God? Who is it, Lord? Whisper to us, God, who is it? And is there any good thing that we've elevated to too high a place and it started to grab our hearts and therefore it's starting to even replace God on the throne of our lives. For these things, Lord, we confess our great need for you. We thank you, Lord, for the promise of your forgiveness, and we receive it even now. Bless you, Lord, that you forgive us from first to last, and you enable us as we go from this place today to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God, in whose name we pray. Amen.